Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with a brilliant scholar. Stanislav Smelev is someone who has interacted with INET through INET at Oxford, through being chosen by INET and Handelsblatt as one of the foremost promising young economists in the world, and at least relative to my age, you're young, but quite experienced by this point. He holds a PhD from 2003 at a university in St. Petersburg in ecological economics and mathematical methods. He's the founder and the director of a group called Environment Europe, which has put out many, many things, but some beautiful books, most recently, Sustainable Cities Reimagined, Ecosystems, The Green Economy Reader. He's recently written a paper that I found quite fascinating with Dr. R. U. Ayers. It was, I believe, this, this calendar year, 2021, on the creation and destruction of national wealth, or financial collapses endogenous. Environmental work, financial work, there's so many dimensions, and we're at a time where I, I will say that I often refer to music, and what inspired me is I was doing the background. There's an old song by the Moody Blues called The Question. And it said, I'm looking for someone to change my life. I'm looking for a miracle in my life. If you could see what it's done to me to lose the love I knew, could safely lead me to the land that I once knew, to learn as we grow old the secrets of the soul. It's not the way you say it, the things you do, it's the more the way you really mean it when you tell me what will be. There is so much yearning right now. In other words, the world is waiting for you. There was a paradigm people clung to. And now through the pandemic, through the environmental crisis, through the crisis of water and the problems of coastlines and oceans, and through financial instability. I don't, I don't want to get too complicated, but a whole lot of people saying, what is going on? And I think that, that sets the stage for someone with your independence, your dexterity, capacities with math and modeling that are far beyond the traditional paradigm. And I want to thank you for joining me today in exploring this very confusing and very difficult realm and time. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. So, Stan, you, you uh, let's, let's talk a little bit just about what's on the top of your agenda right now. What issues do you really want to explore, embrace, or for that matter, have explored, embrace, and want to illuminate for our audience and for the world at large? I guess the six key topics have been central in my work and still deserve, well, deserve a lot of additional attention. And this is probably what I'm going to be focusing in the next few years. These topics are, first of all, multidimensional assessment of progress. 
for countries, companies, cities and regions. It's the subject of ecosystems and biodiversity. As you well know, uh, we are literally destroying the planet and over 60% of our ecosystems have been lost since 1970, according to WWF. Uh, the third topic is smart and sustainable cities. It's a fascinating subject because a lot of us live in cities. Uh, therefore, cities can be those points of leverage where doing things right, we could help solving half the world's problems. It's also a problem of climate change and renewable energy, uh, which uh, I published a few things about. Uh, the issue of a circular economy and sustainable waste management and the, the new interest in um, decision-making and also new sustainable business models. Because ultimately, uh, whether you like it or not, businesses will have to play a major role in getting us out of this mess. I don't see it otherwise. And the sooner the better, they realize that there is a new way and there are examples, of course. We're not going to be talking about it in too much detail, but, you know, a B corporation uh, comes to mind. Uh, they are acknowledging and encouraging um, uh, the work of those businesses that really think outside the box. So not just profit maximization, but other things as well. And I would say that this uh, going uh, or looking outside the box has been a major paradigm in my whole career. I've been looking at interdisciplinary interactions, at things that are not explained very well, at what goes uh, or what lies beyond GDP, uh, using the metaphor that is currently on everybody's minds, uh, and starting from the work by Herman Daly, who was one of the first to actually conceptualize the general model of economy-environment interactions. Uh, it's a very early piece, which is almost forgotten now. It's a paper from 1968. Uh, and later on, uh, Herman Daly uh, proposed an alternative to GDP, where he corrected it for certain things that either shouldn't be there or should be included and haven't been. Uh, so this was called the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare. And inspired by this, I, in fact, went a step further and proposed a new set of methods which use multi-criteria decision aid tools and multiple indicators of macroeconomic performance, not just in economic terms, but also in environmental and social terms, and bringing it all together to really see what is the true progress that certain countries are, are, are making and whether the things are going forward or backward uh, on the balance of evidence. So in your work, let's, let's dive in a little bit. Sustainable cities. There's so, I live in New York. There's so many things going on and so much, what you might call in the, in the realm of orthodox economic language, externalities are pervasive and public goods are, how would I say, much needed. Yes. But but that's too simple. Let's go to sustainability, how it relates to environment, how it relates to quality of life. Well, uh, you can recall Tolstoy in relation to cities, 
because the truly there there are you know all families that are unhappy are unhappy in their own ways in the same fashion uh, there are no two cities that are alike even if we, they have the same population the same level of economic development and so on because the truth is in the details there are many many aspects of urban development that need to be taken into account to truly understand how cities work and what could we do to make them more sustainable. So in our work we designed a large database which at some point included about 140 global cities from all continents so uh, Australia and Oceania, uh, South America, North America, Europe, Asia, Africa and uh, we described these cities with the help of uh, 20 plus metrics of their performance including economic dimensions so things like gross regional product or um, unemployment or inflation uh, to things like the social realm uh, life expectancy the level of education uh, the Gini index measuring the disparities between the rich and the poor in the environmental dimension we look at per capita CO2 emissions and the air quality the amounts of waste being recycled uh, and so on and so on. Uh, we also introduced recently the so-called smart dimension uh, where we look at you know uh, the speed of the internet, the uh, smart infrastructure and so forth. Uh, these All these dimensions are interlinked and um, work in miraculous ways together. So what we've done we created a framework for the sustainability assessment of these cities and figured out which cities perform better than others, everything else being equal. Surprisingly enough, uh, for the set of global cities, these are uh, San Francisco, uh, Stockholm and Seoul, not necessarily in this order, uh, but um, very different cities on different continents that developed different strategies to address these issues. And uh, there could be a whole host of approaches to make a city more sustainable. Actually, we're planning to offer some consultancy advice for those cities who are willing to improve their performance based on the knowledge that we accumulated. And, you know, starting with, with very simple things. So what determines a city's per capita CO2 emissions? Actually, there's a whole range of factors. You could look at the share of coal in the energy mix. That's the simplest one. We have proven that it's statistically significant determinant of CO2 emissions. You could look at the renewable energy share in the energy mix. It also plays a role. You could look at policy measures such as carbon taxes. They also have a role. It might not you know, change the uh, dr situation dramatically, but the effect is positive and statistically proven. Uh, there is a massive factor which people tend to overlook which is the percentage of all trips that people make using walking, cycling and public transport. Actually, I would argue that this measure alone is on the par, if not more important, than transitioning from coal to renewable energy. This is what people most of the time neglect. So we look at public transport systems, we look at the cycling infrastructure, we look at how uh, city centers are pedestrianized, some of the earliest examples of pedestrianization come from uh, Swedish and Danish cities, such as Stockholm, Gothenburg, Copenhagen, and a few German municipalities. And actually this shows in numbers because 
uh, Swedish cities are very high up at the top in the global ranking. So uh, there are other things as well. For instance, recycling rate. Uh, surprisingly enough, and I'll give you, you know, an extreme example, a city of Hamburg where about 50% of electricity is produced using coal has a very high recycling rates. You would think it's a really good thing, but it turns out that recycling requires more energy and this energy has to be clean. And if this energy is not zero carbon, which is most of the time the case, then adding additional recycling, additional percentages of recycling is actually capable of increasing your CO2 uh, impacts. Very counterintuitive result, most people don't understand it, but the message is very simple. Clean your energy before increasing recycling rates. This way you will save the world faster. So uh, that, that's just a simple discussion about one specific dimension, the CO2 emissions per capita, that we were able to, to track. And uh, we, we, we're starting to work uh, on a, a large sample of European cities and regions going into much more depth in terms of how these things work. Uh, the, the book that you uh, referred to, Rob, uh, Sustainable Cities Reimagined, uh, was a very collaborative piece because a lot of my former master students from various universities, Edinburgh and Vienna and other places, have taken part as co-authors. And uh, we were able to look at a whole range of cities, the cities of the global south, the cities of North America and Europe, uh, the global sample, uh, and so on and so forth. So this is a really uh, lovely book. And uh, we, we actually, we, we were uh, offered a chance to put it together at a UN World Open Forum uh, in Kuala Lumpur. And uh, excitingly enough, uh, we were just on time before the pandemic hit on another World Open Forum at the UN to launch the book. So it was officially launched um, uh, at our last uh, engagement of 2020 in Abu Dhabi, after which everything was shut. <laughs> well, let me, uh, I guess, uh, the simple question I'd ask before we move on is, uh, if you had a young family, Many of our young scholars are thinking about having a family. Where would you want your kids to grow up? In the country or in one of these cities? Well, <coughs> it's a difficult question. I would probably like to be in the countryside, uh, but not too far from the city, to avoid, to avoid the air pollution, but to be connected by fast, high-speed railways if something needs to be done or, you know, because it is also, uh, uh, you know, host uh, tremendous cultural uh, treasures. And to, to avoid this would probably uh, mean, you know, um, a, a certain, you know, one-sided education uh, for the children. But, you know, um, it, actually, uh, I would say that relocating to Oxford uh, over 15 years ago now, was an absolutely right choice because Oxford is that idyllic place, which is almost the countryside, but not too far from a large capital city where you could enjoy, you know, your museums, theatres, and everything else. Yes, yes, yeah. There's uh, 
how would I say, there's cultural pollution as well as environmental pollution that has to be uh, inoculated against. <clears throat> now, in the, you know, anxiety of the present time, many people are saying, well, that's fine about this city or that city, but uh, some of them may be underwater, places like Miami or Manhattan in New York. Others are saying, the upper atmosphere and so forth may deteriorate, so it doesn't matter where you live. I have a very strong sense, this UN report that just came out since you and I last talked, that people are saying it's coming and we're not doing enough. Is It feels like the wake-up call is here. What do you see as the sources of resistance to embracing this challenge, analogous to war preparation? Uh, that's a difficult one. Um, I would definitely agree uh, with the statement that not enough is being done, because if you look even the most developed countries, you still see that the railways are not running on renewable electricity. Uh, you see some houses poorly insulated. You see a lot of people still driving their 4x4s on petrol or diesel. Right, uh, lots of issues around the degree of um, complexity uh, and the scale of the problem is often cited as uh, you know the hindering factor that doesn't allow people to actually you know comprehend because you need to ha somehow uh, solve it in your head at least uh, preliminary. You need to understand uh, how different energy carriers interact together what's the role of renewable energy what can you do uh, with the transport sector you have to have uh, you know a really hands-on experience of these things to, to actually uh, you know see how it could play out in the real world uh, of course uh, you know there might be an oil lobby hiding away somewhere uh, it's also true uh, and um, you know just the sheer power of habit so that that human factor which you know in some of our education um, in, in traditional neoclassical economics uh, people were uh, trying uh, to avoid as much as possible which always annoyed me a lot because I wanted to see the real human in the economic models but it's it's a great it's a great uh, factor of hindrance you know people are looking at their neighbors who happened to drive a big uh, SUV or, or a 4x4 uh, car and they want to, to match you, they want to, to, to be the same, they want to uh, project importance, wealth, financial affluence. You know, I still don't have a car uh, <laughs> and it's not just because I failed my exam, it's also out of <laughs> deep commitment. Uh, I, I really think that if you can, uh, of course, you know, when you have a large family, it's a different matter. It's much more difficult, but you could drive a hybrid car. There's lots of options around. Um, and uh, there are there are unnecessary acts of consumption, shall we say. So so I would probably, this would be my answer. So complexity of, of, of the puzzle, the sheer scale of the problem, people are always overwhelmed by what's in front of them. Uh, the uh, the lock-ins, uh, some lobbying, 
and also uh, situations where uh, people are consuming unnecessarily things that they probably shouldn't be consuming. Well, I'm going to smile a little bit because I bought a Toyota Prius hybrid in 2006 and I still haven't sold it. It operates wonderfully. There's no reason to sell it, but it's been a, a, a great car. Though my daughters now 9 and 12 are getting bigger and wanting to bring friends to the movies and stuff, so uh, it's feeling a little, a little tight. But perhaps we'll have electronic cars on the horizon uh, that will alleviate the space constraint while improving the uh, environmental performance. But let me, let me switch. Uh, I'm going to come back to something you said. You said something very important about the need to engage business. There are people who would demonize, whether it's the fossil fuel industry or the transportation industry, but there, I guess the question is how to channel and how to unlock all that talent, all that expertise, particularly given the time frame for climate change, but having it be what you might call directed in a constructive, on a constructive pathway. The, uh, Naomi Klein, the famous environmental activist, her older brother Seth wrote a book, which I made a podcast on, called The Good War. And he used the analogy between Canada now, which is both a consumer and a producer of carbon, and the preparation for World War II, where Canada joined before the United States did, but how they shifted gears. Bill Janeway from my board and uh, very involved in scholarship written lots about the relationship between technology and society, has a new course. And in the end, he's talking about how do we mobilize, how does the state mobilize and catalyze the transformation of the private sector so that it accelerates, how, first it redirects its attention, new bullseye, and accelerates the process for implementation. Bill's father wrote The Struggle for Survival which is about FDR and war preparation. So I, that's why I bring this analogy up. What do we need from governance, from the state? What do we need to actualize the, the power and the energy of business that you described earlier? Well, I truly believe that business has a role to play in all of this, and this role is actually very important. Um, I would probably break it down into several sub-areas where I think the impact could be greatest. Uh, it is, of course, investment, an investment using not just the return, but also additional dimensions. My favorite multidimensional approach, uh, which is now called ESG, is a new term, uh, Environment, Social and Governance Approach. Uh, there is ample research that shows that uh, ESG investments even give you higher financial returns, among other things. So what's not to like there, right? But it's still not uh, 100% of portfolios of the pension funds and uh, sovereign wealth funds and, uh, you know, uh, us investors, uh, private investors as well. So um, not every bank uh, allows you uh, to invest in ESG uh, fund or, or gives you such an opportunity. So that probably will need to be changed uh, very fast. Uh, there is another major dimension, uh, which is to do with the business model. Now, we all know the uh, traditional uh, 
um, formulation of the business model, which actually uh, uh, was carried out not so long ago. You know, the famous book uh, formulating the business models um, of 2014, I think. Uh, there is a new approach available, which is called the multi-layered business model. Uh, on one level, uh, we're looking at everything to do with the markets, competition, uh, the unique selling proposition, uh, constraints, costs, and all the other resources and all the other factors that are traditionally part of a um, um, well-known business model. But at the same time, we have two extra layers. We have the social layer and we have the environmental layer where we reflect on the impacts of our business operations strategically. Uh, we uh, reflect on how we um, treat our staff, uh, what is happening uh, you know, in terms of the differences in pay between the highest paid and the lowest paid, uh, what are the security mechanisms, the protections, are we allowing women back to work without destroying their careers, which, as we know, sadly is happening all over the place, and so on and so forth. And the environmental field, we look at uh, where we acquire resources, how we receive our energy, uh, how we use water, uh, how we travel, how we feed our staff, and uh, all the other things that happen with our operations. And we try to reconsider the whole principle of offering a good for sale and trying to move towards uh, more of a service-centric approach, uh, looking longer term, looking at um, uh, receiving or accepting used products again for recombination, re reshuffle or you know repairment, um, those types of things. Because uh, there is a very popular buzzword uh, uh, out there right now, which is circular economy. For me, circular economy is never going to work unless we're going to solve the issue of built obsolescence. Because uh, recycling everything forever, when goods like phones, computers, cars are designed for two years maximum, is equally going to destroy the planet if we don't recycle and just throw it away. What will be really the solution is focusing slightly more, I'm being deliberately gentle, on longer, more durable products. And of course, building in the circularity so that when something goes out of business, you could extract the valuable elements, you could recombine and, and make sure that you know it works again. As a guy who grew up in Detroit, Michigan, the echoes of planned obsolescence come to mind as, uh, as I'm listening to you, where, uh, it, how do I say, having the car wear out means you need a new one, and changing the features, including the aesthetic features, inspire people to want to have, like, the latest. You were referring earlier to the, what you might call vanities about cars as opposed to the functionality. And I think planned obsolescence uh, played into that strategy as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your new paper with Dr. Ayers on finance and what, how is wealth generation and what you might call sustainability or resilience created 
And when is the system flawed and it yes. performs like 2008? Well, I have to start with the statement that this paper is really, uh, you know, a, a step, a first important step in a much larger um, grand scheme of things. Uh, and we're planning to do a lot more. Um, the idea was relatively simple to try to empirically trace the possibly overlooked factors that either are triggered or didn't uh, protect us from the financial crisis of 2008-2009. And we were fortunate enough to get a very large data set on the US economy going back to the First World War. So it really is a hundred plus year data set. So a very good starting point. And uh, empirically looking at uh, the data and uh, you know very much inspired by the research of empirical economists who actually always reminded us that um, a lot of economic facts take place in space and in time which sometimes you know the traditional economists avoided what we tried to do was to look at various macroeconomic aggregates uh, various uh, variables that could have played a role uh, and we found at least two or three interesting things. First of all, we were able to show that Glass-Steagall Act, which prohibited commercial banks from doing uh, speculative operations, was actually important. Of course, it didn't cha change things overnight. It didn't increase uh, wealth in the U.S. by a factor of three, but it has a positive statistically significant impact, which is something that we have to bear in mind and put aside because it's an important dimension. And then we were able to see that uh, the changes in the oil price were also important as a precondition for the collapse that happened. So there was an increase in the oil price that wasn't anticipated. Um, plus, uh, of course, we tried our very best to look at the derivatives market. Uh, but unfortunately, actually, if you look even today, the full data set on all the contracts uh, since their beginning of the early 90s is not available. So you can't actually trace and empirically check uh, any potential impacts. But we know the scale of, of the derivatives economy. It, it outstripped the real economy by by a huge margins by, by you know several orders of magnitude, which for me was also always you know a, a sign of um, you know um, a potential risk or or concern, because financial innovation is brilliant unless it's capable of triggering a certain collapse, and therefore you know looking at the the cryptocurrency today. I cannot but recall uh, my uh, paper as a third-year undergraduate student when I focused on financial pyramids, because you could build a very simple mathematical model which will tell you when you should pack your bags and leave. Uh, and sadly enough, with all the good things said about cryptocurrencies being uh, democratic, 
being a, you know a solution against the traditional financial systems and the government-led currencies. Uh, so far, uh, you know, I have uh, largely failed to see the, you know, the reason for for this incredible excitement, because I see I see massive shortcomings. I see you know the existence of various so-called forks when when the digital currencies stop being so secure. I see hyper, uh, you know, um, expansionary, uh, you know, dynamics of 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 the prices of the currencies, which, you know, uh, are not connected to any real value, uh, uh, as opposed to the value of being under the radar and uh, transferring large sums of money without being checked. Uh, so uh, there's lots of delays in processing the fees, uh, the processing, the transactions. Uh, when I saw for the first time uh, the laboratories somewhere in China, I think, uh, where hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of computers are used day and night just to uh, to match a certain code to to process the transaction, I, I almost cried and I asked why on earth all this computational capacity, which, by the way, generates CO2 emissions the size of Switzerland, the whole sovereign country, why can't they be linked to something more valuable? The search of exoplanets, the medical research, the climate modeling. You could equally qualify useful computational time and credit it if you want a certain transaction, because so far... For me, looking at how cryptocurrencies work, it didn't make much sense. So, um, uh, cu cutting the story short, uh, the paper is available. It's published in a free free access journal called Sustainability. Uh, uh, everybody's welcome to read it, to comment it, to comment it, to to uh, uh, use it in their research, and we will carry on by looking at other dimensions by looking at CO2 emissions, by looking at um, life expectancy, by looking at various other metrics that are part of our methodology for assessing progress for countries over time. Well, I, uh, I'm listening. Obviously, INET was born in the traumatic birth experience of the great financial crisis. And I, scholars like Michael Greenberger were tracing, he's at University of Maryland, tracing, he was a former CFTC commissioner, the growth of derivatives. And like you said, they kind of all went underground and offshore and the ability to compile the data on the scale of them, though we know it's enormous, was not there. Earlier in my life, I was the chief economist of the Senate Banking Committee at the time of the 87 stock market crash. At the time, there was a fantasy in the derivative realm called portfolio insurance, which was a way you could handle your downside. But when the interaction between the futures exchange and the stock exchange in New York started to malfunction, it contributed to what you might call the fear that led to the sell-off. So I think there are a lot of vulnerabilities there and a lot of things. Uh, Richard Vague, who's on our board at INET, A Brief History of Doom, he talked about what can you see in the data 
that tells you when to pack your bags, just like you refuted earlier. So I think there's a great deal of work there, and I know many people are not yet, how would I say, comfortable that we've learned the lessons of the great financial crisis. And there are a lot of people who are very concerned about what you might call the political economy that creates uh, commodification of design and enforcement on behalf of the people who, what you might call, can take advantage of the mother of all moral hazards by being too big to fail. So I think this is an area that you're driving into that has a great deal to do with social confidence. And as I think the uh, financial crisis of 2008 illustrates, that was the beginning not just of loss of confidence in financial regulation, but in governance as a whole. Because the financial sector is always considered in those days very sophisticated at the frontier, at times very prudent and discouraging us for taking off on unsustainable paths. And then they did it themselves, snapped their fingers and asked for $800 billion. And uh, so that I, I find the, uh, how would I say, when I talk to young people now, the sense of urgency about climate, about gender and race inequality, about the cost of education, those things capture their imaginations more quickly. But these deeper, what you might call foundation stones of a stable and prosperous society. Adair Turner, Between Debt and the Devil, the book that he wrote as a senior fellow, illustrates that what, has, what we're doing is we're guaranteeing all kinds of people on the promise that capital flows will generate productivity. When much of it is uh, collateralized real estate, it doesn't have very much to do with productivity, but the guarantees are enormous. So I, I, I applaud you for reaching back into that realm because I think it's still what you might call an unresolved aspect of what you might call the uh, coherent society that we all aspire to achieve. You mentioned to me earlier uh, Global South and environmental transformation in the Global South. I've been involved with a group that INET sponsors called the Commission on uh, Global Economic Transformation. And one of the things that came onto our radar screen, International Office of Migration is talking about vast increases between now and 2075 in the population of the continent of Africa. While we might say the East Asian development model of manufacturing, infant industry protection and so forth is challenged by global supply chains, machine learning and automation, and climate in equatorial regions like South Asia and like Africa threatens which you might call the viability of subsistence farming. So all of this looks like, I mean, that, that's what you might call the frightening side of the ledger. Then I see people like Chris Kramer at SOAS or Michael Spence, who's the co-chair of this commission, trying to see how to bring technology and innovation to, uh, let me say, a different development model. But how do, you, how do you see the Global South in relation to the climate crisis and, and what kind of things would you recommend? It's very hard to adopt a Swedish model for a billion and a half people. But 
but there have got to be clues contained within the successes that you found that would give guidance to that development. That's true. In fact, I was so keen to uh, come closer to these people and to the problems that I traveled numerous times as a visiting professor to countries like Kazakhstan and even Colombia in Latin America uh, to teach ecological economics and to learn how the societies operate and how they work. And what I can report is actually what not many people openly understand and acknowledge. There's a whole range of countries in the developing world that are already today zero carbon when it comes to the electricity production. A lot of the hydroelectricity is used in countries like Colombia, Brazil, Nepal, uh, Albania, uh, Bhutan, and many others. Uh, and actually, uh, you know, the developing, well, the, the developed world uh, somehow uh, fails to see that. There is, there is another problem which relates to uh, ecosystems as such, because most, most um, valuable ecosystems uh, are located in the, in the tropics, in the belt where you have so-called countries of the global south. It's Colombia, it's Brazil, it's Indonesia, it's, it's Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and India, and a whole bunch of other countries. Uh, it is absolutely fundamental that we protect and enhance those ecosystems. And the conflicts that are emerging are enormous. Um, I was witnessing a story unfolding in Colombia where uh, certain groups were aiming to privatize specific lands that are allied to a little bit higher than the capital city of Bogota, with the aim to explore for gold. Remember the famous El Dorado story. Lest they know that these particular regions are performing an absolutely unique ecosystem service or function. They are the high altitude wetlands uh, that are accumulating the moisture from the lo low lying clouds and the air and collecting this moisture and providing the drinking water for the capital city of eight to nine million people. So imagine if this exploration for gold, which is extremely valuable economically, would have gone ahead, this whole city of Bogota would have been deprived of the source of drinking water and for all the hospitals, all the kindergartens and all the um, nine million inhabitants, it of course wouldn't have been an easy challenge. So um, lots of discussions. Lots of discussions abound regarding ecosystems, conservation, and the so-called developing world. When I was giving a lecture at Cambridge once, somebody came up to me and said, well, I'm from Ecuador. We want the global community to pay us not to extract oil and to develop our national park. I said, don't do it. They said, why? We have come up with a massive amount, uh, you know, several billion dollars that our national park is worth. Uh, by the way, when I worked for the IUCN, International Union for Conservation of Nature, uh, and I was tasked with the uh, job of developing a new 
tool or method for evaluating ecosystems, I came up with a multidimensional, again the keyword, multidimensional approach, which doesn't convert the value of nature into money. And this is a fundamental point, because even the whole concept of value in many other languages than English uh, are multidimensional themselves. They point towards a value, something is being valuable because it's rare. Something being valuable because it's performing unique functions. Something being valuable because it's beautiful and not necessarily because you could flog it and sell it and, and get a good return on it. So that's the first principle. Now, what happens if you let it run uh, and uh, you create an open market for ecosystem services? Well, uh, there is a very good chance that a few... Uh, extremely rich individuals or group will privatize the whole tropical belt and we're not going to be able to control what happens there. That's one thing and this is a global public good. This uh, the tropical belt still hosts those valuable um, uh, plants and animals and, and processes that without which uh, the whole earth ecosystem will collapse and we're not going to survive. So uh, my arguments in relation to Ecuador were very simple. I said, well, imagine the price of oil changes. Imagine it triples. That will mean that you will have to cut your forest down and destroy your national park because nothing will save you. You will have a figure stamped in court that some clever economists have calculated for you several billion dollars, but that'll be it. You wouldn't be able to object. So from my point of view, monetary evaluation of nature is not a solution to the problem, right? In another discussion, an argument arose, what do you really want? To sell an asset or to protect it, right? If you want to protect an asset, you might figure out a slightly different set of approaches. And this is actually why uh, I was able to publish this uh, rather unusual volume. It's an album of photographs called Ecosystems. Uh, I was helped in this difficult task by several uh, good people, including Dr. Joachim Spangenberg, who kindly wrote the introductions to each chapter and some designers from University of Reading who helped to put it together. But the main message is very simple. The world is multidimensional and uh, nature shouldn't be bought or sold. It performs incredibly complex set of functions uh, which are amply illustrated by the images in this book. So each chapter is devoted to a particular ecosystem service and from food uh, oxygen supply, uh, clean water, pollination, inspiration for artists, and a sense of place and other types of ecosystem services that we enjoy. Uh, this book goes through them all. Um, the most exciting detail is that uh, we decided to use this book as a sort of leverage point to attract the attention of global policymakers and sent it to a few prime ministers and the heads of state. Uh, I'm not going to say much about those who haven't responded, but among those who have responded, we have very interesting 
individuals and countries. We have uh, His Holiness Pope Francis. We have uh, President of France, President Macron. We have Prime Minister of the Netherlands, uh, Prime Minister Rutte. We also have a letter from uh, Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi. And a handwritten note from David Attenborough himself, who said that he has no doubt that this book could be turned into a BBC documentary. Guess what? When I send it to the BBC, that's another copy, uh, they have never replied. <laughs> so, but uh, I'm greatly persuaded that uh, you need to use other tools than just financial valuation to trigger people's interest, to reach the hearts as well as minds. And uh, the book uh, was launched at the Club of Rome 50th anniversary meeting, the same Club of Rome that was set up at the time when the famous Limits to Growth report was launched back in the early 70s that used a very complex but yet elegant systems dynamics model to show that unless we deal with resource availability, environmental pollution and the growth of population, we're going to face significant challenges on multiple levels. And surprise, surprise, even the old authors of the report themselves confirm now that we are still on the wrong track. So we managed to organize an exhibition of photographs accompanied by texts from um, Joachim Spangenberg in Oxford. And Oxford University kindly gave us space at the Mathematical Institute to do that. Unfortunately, the Oxford Times, the local newspaper, referred to this exhibition as too highbrow. And the BBC Oxford said that uh, we need to care to, uh, to care to, for the masses. It's too niche. So um, I was puzzled to a great extent because I thought, well, hang on a second. Uh, somebody comes up with an exhibition and invites people to visit free of charge. And you prepare to stand in the way just because you think it's too highbrow. I went to the bar in Oxford and the barman raised his eyebrows and he said, Highbrows in Oxford? <laughs> well, I would say um, many different things. Uh, first of all, the idea that logic, numbers, statistics is the only way to connect with people is missing a great deal of the, what you might call, magnetic field one can generate. I recently made a two-part podcast with a very wise man, Dr. Irvin Laszlo, and his connection of the spirituality of India with science and the notion of the importance of the arts was very, very central to his, what you might call, the vision of wholeness and at a time when we have to persuade people to embrace an enormous challenge, we need the, we need the what you might call, the, the retro rockets of both the mind and the heart to get us over the hill. I noticed in your uh, work, we, and we had talked about, you've had an exhibit, I think it was called Magical Realism, a series of photographs, 
we've talked about, you have an upcoming uh, exhibit in Venice. Why don't you describe that for us? Uh, because it feels to me like you're reaching into a dimension that very few so social scientists either have the capacity to or the desire to touch base with. But in terms of filling out the full spectrum of awareness, I, how, how'd you say? Your mathematical models are more highbrow. Your arts are for the heart-minded. Yes, I would agree. Uh, the exhibition in Venice is really exciting because uh, I'm actually very humbled and very pleased because my art was selected as the creme de la creme of contemporary art of the whole world uh, of 2021. Uh, there's only 120 artworks that were selected for this show. Uh, it's called Arte Laguna Prize and it's going to be uh, held in Venice at L'Arsenale di Venezia, where the famous Biennale is held um, every few years. Uh, the private view is on the 2nd of October this year, and the exhibition is going to extend until the 24th of October. And now a little bit about the piece that I'm showing. The piece that I'm showing is a square photograph called Magical Realism, from the Magical Realism series. It depicts uh, an extremely beautiful uh, terrain in the depths of Colombia, the Coffee Triangle, which uh, presents a few visual challenges. On the one hand, you see a beautiful landscape. When you look closer, you suddenly realize that deforestation has happened uh, over the space of probably two-thirds of the photograph. Uh, in fact, those hills were deforested at a very high pace until the moment in the early 1980s when uh, a very iconic tree called Palma de Serra, the national tree of Colombia, was suddenly designated as a protected tree and a national symbol. So uh, the ecosystem is supposed to be uh, extremely lush and wild with uh, spectacled bears, yellow-eared parrots, toucans, pumas, and all other animals. I haven't seen a single one when I was there because most likely a lot of the diversity has already been lost. So in the 80s, they were just about capable of uh, freezing the moment in time but it hasn't been you know fully uh, recovered uh, since and the whole uh, point about about two-thirds of the photograph depicting deforestation echoes very nicely with the stats that I've quoted at the beginning of this interview from WWF which said that we raised over 60 percent of our ecosystems since 1970. And guess what? Did we have 100% in 1970? Well, of course not. It was much less than that. So um, the, the, the photograph is a little bit transformed. So the colors were changed, inspired by some beautiful early 20th century folk artists. Some of the books you see here behind me, people like Matisse and, and uh, um, Durand and others. And the colors also shout. 
So uh, you're most welcome to visit my Instagram stream, which is called environment, uh, environmental artist with an underscore, environmental artist, and see somewhere below at a very uh, interesting exhibition in Bristol a couple of years ago, uh, I had uh, a bunch of young kids coming to the piece. And I saw immediately that they were captivated. They were pointing their fingers at the palm trees and they were arguing very, very intensely among themselves, which you never see, you know, uh, to that extent among the adults. And I was thinking, oh my God, it worked. It finally worked. So uh, this piece is designed to raise a few more brows, to attract attention uh, to the issues of deforestation and uh, the crisis of biodiversity. To illustrate the point that climate change is a big deal, but it's not the only issue we're facing. There's more. And simply uh, do it in a form that is also has the cultural significance. Uh, I should add that at our think tank, Environment Europe Foundation, we require additional funding. And why one of our innovations, one of our innovative business models was to try to sell environmental art to attract funds for much-needed research. So uh, if you can help, this will be the best you can do. Acquire a beautiful piece of environmental art which will you know, provide uh, a colorful um, point of attraction and a talking point for all your friends for years to come and also help us to do the much-needed work that needs to be done. Well, I started this conversation with the song by the Moody Blues on the questions. And I'll go back to it here to underscore what I experienced when I looked at magical realism and could see this other dimension of what you're doing. In this verse, it says, Between the silence of the mountains and the crashing of the sea, there lies a land I once lived in, and she's waiting there for me. But in the gray of the morning, my mind becomes confused between the dead and the sleeping and the road that I must choose. Why do we never get an answer when we're knocking at the door with a thousand million questions about hate and death and war? Because when we stop and look around us, there is nothing that we need in a world of persecution that is burning in its greed. Why do we never get an answer when we're knocking at the door? Because the truth is hard to swallow that's what this war of love is for. And I think in this desperate time, the fact that you are able to maintain such vigorous and constructive and enthusiastic presence, how would I say? It's one of those mathematical amplifying feedback loops. You can create a self-fulfilling prophecy if you can inspire, more energy joints and the likelihood of success increases. But the depth and the breadth of your work is what I wanted to illustrate for our audience today. And I'll go to one of my favorite songs. It was actually written by a man named Mike Scott from Scotland of the Waterboys in honor of Jimi Hendrix. And Jimi Hendrix, as you know, was a very, very supple and innovative and powerful spirit. So the first verse reminded me of you, and that is, 
I pictured a rainbow. You held it in your hands. I had some flashes, but you saw the plan. I wandered out in the world for years, while you just stayed in your room. I saw a crescent, but you saw the whole of the moon. Stan, you are an example. You're a beacon. Please, keep it up. And yes, whether it's through your artwork or through illustrating your scholarly work or through your teaching, you got to help us get there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's talk again soon. Perhaps we'll do a, let's do a, a post-mortem on your art exhibit in Venice and the experience that you have. We'll do another episode yes, at that absolutely. time. absolutely. And if you could maybe help spread the word that we're looking for volunteers, interns, to, to yes. carry the research work forward. And uh, the other most important part is about, you know, funding this going forward as well, because uh, the Environment Europe Foundation cannot carry on without the much needed help. Whether it's in the form of the art sales or just donations, well, we, 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 we need it. Yeah, well, you can, how would I say, you've got many magnets to attract. People can choose from the menu at environmenteurope.eu in order to, uh, how to say, join the team in the march that you're leading. Absolutely, environmenteurope.eu. Good. We'll talk again soon, but thank you it for was today. A pleasure. Thank you so much. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it. And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking. But I'll know my song well before I start singing